Well, good morning, dear friends. It's good to be with you. And even better to be with you in the scriptures this morning. Um, we are continuing our series here that we're calling Harvest, which is on Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 9, 10, and some of 11. Here Jesus talks about what the harvest is and about training his followers to participate with him in his mission to the world to reap this harvest of souls. So last week what we looked at is Jesus' ministry and message, Jesus' priority, who he's focused on, who his target is, and Jesus' motivations for going out on mission. Now this is helpful for us for lots of different reasons, but I think especially because in the Canadian church today, we have an evangelistic reluctance. We feel the pressure to keep the message of Jesus to ourselves. We feel our own inadequacies, our insecurities about doing so. And we've also seen models of evangelism that make us embarrassed or shrink back in order to try and balance out um, how the church is represented, how Jesus is represented in evangelism. What we're doing here, though, as a community, is seeking to submit to Jesus and be taught, trained, motivated by the same things that motivate him. So let's just do a quick recap of last week. Jesus' message and ministry is summarized by Matthew with these three things. His teaching, his proclaiming the kingdom, and healing of every affliction. Those are the three primary things that Jesus is consistently doing, and Matthew keeps us centered on. Now, his teaching is doing the good work of showing who God really is from the scriptures. That's really important. Jesus isn't saying, let me show you who God really is, and let's do away with those scriptures. Jesus is saying, let me show you who he really is in the scriptures. Isn't that helpful? Because Jesus restores even our relationship with the scriptures. He helps cut through the confusion to show the clarity of God's nature and his redemptive plan in such a way that we go, these scriptures are mine. I love the God that I see in these scriptures. So, we love them. We enjoy unpacking them every week for that very reason, because of the clarity that Jesus brings in it. Now, ultimately, what Jesus reveals in his teaching of the scriptures is how good God is. That God is absolutely wonderful. Far better than people think he is. The misrepresentations of the scriptures, right? the assumptions and the confusion that comes up there, clouds how good God is. Not to mention that often the temptation of the religious is to somehow hide the goodness of God. Is that they want to downplay it because they think we're not taking God seriously enough. John Owen, one of the great... Uh, Christian writers, he talks about it like this. He says, men are afraid to have good thoughts of God. They think it is, a pres- it is a presumptuous to eye God as good, gracious, tender, 
kind, loving. Is not this sole deceit from Satan? Nothing more acceptable to the Father than for us to keep up our hearts unto him as the eternal fountain of that rich grace which flows out to sinners in the blood of Jesus. The goodness of God is the message of Jesus from the Scriptures. The next thing we see about his ministry is proclaiming the kingdom. That not only is God good and God has a redemption plan, but it's here. I am the way of redemption. God is the way of salvation. And it's a relief to people like us because it means we're not the means of salvation. Isn't that good news? You aren't the plan of transformation. You aren't the plan of earning God's favor. You aren't the plan of provision for your life. God is everything. Isn't that good news? It's relief for worn out people. So Jesus teaches the goodness of God, proclaims the kingdom, the way of salvation, and then shows that it works through his ministry of healing. Every affliction. And the point that's being proved over and over and over again is God's way, which is Jesus, works in your life to save you, to heal you, to restore you, and to make you whole. Is that good news? So this is Jesus' ministry. But his priority, the people that he's focused on, especially here at this point in the Gospel of Matthew, is he's focused on the harassed and the helpless and those who are wandering their life without a shepherd. Specifically, Jesus' focus is on Israel, God's chosen people. That his focus is on the religious those who have come looking for God in the Scriptures and in the collective gathering of the people, but what they found instead is a a message that says, God is angry and rejecting you. You need to get your life together. That's what I was thinking. And you need to change yourself. Sin is a real issue, and you've got to stop it. So that message that you need to save yourself before God, Jesus views it as harassment that produces helplessness in the people. That it paralyzes them. Because here's the reality. The Israelites of this time, growing up in the synagogues and under the teachings, They know the holiness of God. But they also hear about, read the Psalms, sing the Psalms, pray the Psalms. So they're hearing about the loving and patient faithfulness of God. They know that they have and are sinning and that they need to stop and that they need to live a holy life. And so what they then have is the priests who are overseeing a system for offering sacrifices. But the system's corrupted. It favors the rich. It makes it difficult for the poor and the lowly to participate. We looked at that in other parts of Matthew. The Pharisees, on the other hand, are the teachers coming in saying you need to follow the law to the letter through your own efforts. 
And so they spell it out even further than the law of Moses and go, these are the ways you need to do this. 200 and some extra laws and ordinances that you need to follow to structure your whole life to know you're doing it right. Sounds helpful. At least there's some clarity. But boy, is it awfully hard to achieve that. Especially if all your energy and all your effort is just going into surviving another day. Right? All of these supposedly helpful teachers that give you this plan to follow are just heaping on you more expectations. So the sick, the sinful, and the broken are falling short of that system and that plan and aren't even welcomed in the synagogue. They're viewed as just sinners who need to be expelled and are a liability to the community. But these are the exact people that Jesus is most focused on. So hear me out. I think in our day and age, there are a lot of former or however they would refer to themselves, ex-Christians, young and old, who grew up in a Christianity that seemed to be more about law than about grace that was functionally more about you being perfect and holy than it was about God being perfect and holy for you. And somewhere along the way, they got sick of the system. And they got sick of the culture. And they got sick of the inconsistencies. And they said, I'm out. And there's a part of it that I I look at it and I go, you're not wrong that prophetic utterance that's coming from the sick and the lowly and the broken saying, this doesn't help me or work for me. This does not sound like good news for me. I'm out of here. I think is a legitimate statement. Now where I think it becomes illegitimate is to say, this is, that's who I think God is. That this is how God thinks, and so I don't want anything to do with God. I reject Jesus. I'm out completely. I think, though, in this time, the church is meant to have clarity about God, clarity about the gospel, working it out with integrity in the community of the church, from leadership down to basic relational functions with one another. Because... Those who are wandering, going in their heart, what they really wanted was Jesus. What they were really looking for is the good news of the Gospel. And what they love deep down in their heart is to be a part of a community that cares about those things. Isn't that true? But it's all mired and confused and broken and misrepresented. Jesus is saying, in, this, in that time to Israel and all of the people that were feeling that way, they're the ones he wants to have a homecoming with. They're his priority of the harvest. I'm re-preaching last week. So Jesus' motivation towards those individuals is he's moved by what? Compassion. He looks at their stories and goes, I get it. I get why you feel like you haven't been at home in the synagogue. I get why you have confusion about God. I get why you're wandering looking. Because 
he sees what they've gone through and sees that it falls short of the actual good news about who God is and how good his redemptive plan is. So he's moved with compassion. They were never meant to sustain themselves, never meant to save themselves, and are truly, honestly enslaved to evil and futility. Because what does the world offer in place of the gospel? Is here's how you take life into your own hands. Here's how you accomplish success. Here's how you, have, you find value. You're in charge. You're the boss. You make it happen. Sounds empowering, but it's not. It's exhausting. Choosing everything about yourself sounds like freedom, but it's exhausting. Here Jesus is coming in and saying that essentially the synagogue failed you. And now you've tried the ways of the world and they're insufficient. You're ripe and ready for my way. The way that truly does work and truly does fulfill. And so what he does is he looks past the crowds in the sense that he doesn't need the attention of the crowds for himself. He's secure in himself. And sees into the crowds to see the individual and values them. He sees their value, their beauty, their struggle, their desperation, and their needs, and he's moved by it. So what does Jesus do with this up and outpouring of compassion? Verse 37 is where we pick up from last week. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. So we look at a situation like Canada, and we go, What a mess the church is in. So many people are walking away from the faith. There's so much deconstruction. Atheism is on the rise. And does that feel super encouraging to us? No. It kind of makes you ask the question, why am I still doing this? But here's the way Jesus looks at it, and he sees potential. He sees a harvest. He sees it as These are the conditions that I've been waiting for. They're ripe for my way, the good way, the way that works to shine. Isn't that encouraging? That when we've exhausted our ways and the ways of the world, when we are at our most helpless, and when is when we are nearing health in the way of Jesus. So I want you to see it that way. When you see friends and family members that have fallen from the faith and it's getting darker and harder, we have compassion on how hard that is. We grieve that. We don't celebrate that. But we know that that road is going to lead to eyes that can see Jesus. So we have hope for it, even though it's getting difficult. Because when we're in that space, we're ready to see Jesus and we're ready to receive Jesus. So he sees the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He also sees in his beautiful humility that this is work he is not meant to do alone. And and it's for three main reasons, I think. The first is the way of his kingdom is to involve, lift, and bestow upon his people, his followers, meaningful participation. So Jesus looks at the harvest and goes, 
I need my people to do this with me. We are always meant to work under and with the Creator. But sin had us working against and competing with Him. So redemption looks like working with God towards God's ends. It's essentially like God is saying, my garden and my world are ready for harvest. Come and tend it with me. It's like a return to Eden. The second reason is this. Because the harvest is of souls. The harvest is of real people. Deeply valuable, personal hearts of humanity. And God's design is that the laborer, the harvester, would be a person. So the harvest is personal. So hear me. It's not just, hey, let's throw a radio program up, announce the way of Jesus is available, we've done our duty. The actual presentation of the way of Jesus is meant to be from person to person. Either Christ or a human agent of Christ. And I think because that's consistent with the Gospel of the Incarnation, that God enters into humanity to save humanity. I was reading yesterday the story of three young women that were all of of Jewish heritage that came to Christ during uh, the Holocaust and ended up giving their lives in the Holocaust. And one of them, her name was Edith Stein. She was a German-Jewish philosopher who was converted to the faith and later martyred and canonized as a saint by the Catholic Church. But in 1917, she was still a graduate student, and Edith visited a German widow whose husband had been killed in World War I. Now, she was impressed by the widow's faithful acceptance of her husband's death and her conviction that they'd be reunited after her own because she was a Christian. And here's how she talks about it. This was my first encounter with the cross and the divine power it imparts to those who bear it. For the first time, I was seen with my very eyes the church, born from her Redeemer's sufferings, triumphant over the sting of death. It was the moment when my unbelief collapsed. And Christ began to shine his light upon me. Christ in the mystery of the cross. She came to faith by looking at a person. And this, I think, is the profound mystery here, is that Jesus is in the flesh, on earth, with the crowds, and his assessment of the situation is, I cannot and should not do this alone. The third reason that I think Jesus thinks this is because Jesus does nothing without his Father. So verse 38, he says this, Therefore, pray earnestly to the Father of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So the first response of Jesus, when he's under stress, so to speak, from the intensity of the need of the situation, is to pray. I love this. Jesus' default response Here, he says the quiet part out loud to his disciples. He's so moved by it, but rather than saying, we need to do something, or I need you to get going, Jesus' first response is, we need to talk to the Father about this. It's a rare moment 
where we see Jesus articulate the limitations of his earthly ministry. He can't physically interact with everybody. He needs help. And physical interaction is something that he deems essential. But he doesn't just commission his helpers in that moment. He thinks the next necessary step is to talk to what he calls the Lord of the harvest, God the Father. And tells his disciples, pray earnestly for this to happen. So what is it about the Lord of the harvest? Why does he want to pray to the Father? It's because the fields and the fruit that fills them are his. This is how Jesus sees it. The Father takes ownership of this work. It's His field. It's His place. It's His people. It's His harvest. That's Jesus' language. Pray to the, earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into what? Into His harvest. So in Jesus' mind, God the Father is the main doer in the harvest. God is actively doing it having sent His Son to be the way that people find salvation. And the Father knows His field and knows when it's ready for harvest. So He knows the individuals. and He knows the story. and He's been tilling the ground and planting seeds and preparing them. Isn't that good news too? So when we look out at the island and we go, oh, we see so much harassment and helplessness and people wandering looking for a shepherd, we should also see that the Father is at work in His fields. When you think of your grandkids or kids that aren't following the Lord, you should see the Father, the Lord of the harvest, at work there. And pray earnestly towards Him that He would send laborers into that field. But also, what we're going to see is that the Father must approve of the new hires. He's going to be the one to send them out into his harvest, but he Jesus actually takes this very seriously. The type of laborers that he's looking for is ones congruent with his son, whom he has sent. We're going to see in chapter 12 that the answer to these prayers, essentially what's going to happen is Jesus is going to say to his disciples, pray to the Lord of the harvest, that I would have permission to send you out. That's what we're going to see in chapter 10. Which is a beautiful little segue to see Jesus do that. But before we look at that next week, I want to go through, just based on these few verses, what are the harvest essentials for us to be the type of people that the Lord of the harvest would send out. So I want to look at six keys that we pulled out of the last two weeks. The first is Jesus' message and ministry. This has to be our way. And I've been stressing this for the last five years, that our way of engaging with the harvest is not through attraction to try and make this the coolest place in the city. Our goals are not to... Um, bait and switch people into coming to church and things like that. We want to lead with the main things, don't we? That we want to be confident in the Scriptures and that our message would be based in the Scriptures. We, because Jesus' was. 
And we want the good news of the kingdom, the gospel, to be the primary message of not only our church, but every individual person. And to do that, you've got to know it. You need to know for yourself the good news of the gospel. Because we want the third thing to be that it works to save, heal, and restore. That we need living testimony of that reality. That we want our message to be congruent with Jesus' message and ministry. Don't we? So once we have a confidence there, it's really going to fuel a lot of other next steps. We know that this Gospel comes from the Scriptures. We know that this Gospel is good news. And we know that this Gospel works. Amen? Do we agree? Then the next question becomes who? Who, is, who are we focused on? Who do we care most about? Who are we prioritizing? Not to the exclusion of others, but who are we prioritizing? And I think the answer to that is the harassed and the helpless. Now, nobody wants to be called the harassed and the helpless. Okay, so we're not leading with that. Hey, you look awfully harassed and very helpless. But let me talk about how that conversation looks. I am always looking to build relationships. And I'll be honest with you, they're not always the most comfortable thing in the world. But I'm trying to make relationships with people in my community. A few weeks, a few months ago, my brother and I were working out at our gym that we go to. And I always get a little bit more confident when my brother's with me. Um, Not because he's outgoing at all. He's like a intense introvert. But there's something about the juxtaposition that always kind of, I think it's because it makes him uncomfortable, I enjoy it more. (laughs) But anyway, so we're working out and there's this couple that works out at the same time as me every day and they're just the most fit couple you've ever seen. The dude is jacked, like just Sometimes I just sit there and watch him work out until we make eye contact, and I'm like, oh, sorry. (laughs) But this time I thought, you know what, let's strike up a conversation. Let's chat a little bit. And so I was trying to say to him that he is really good at what he does. And so he was doing dips at the time. So you put your hands in, do body weight dips, and he's just pounding them out. And so I go up and I talk to him. I'm like, man, you are the dip queen, I said. (laughs) And I thought, i got to just keep moving and pretend that didn't happen. But my brother, my introverted brother, comes out of his shell and he goes, wait, wait, wait a second. Did you call him a queen? And I'm like, yeah, I don't know why. I'm so sorry I said that. And it's been this awkward relationship ever since. So all this to say... Making new relationships does not always go well. Um, Sometimes it's just making a fool of myself. But I think the reason when I'm looking to, to kind of have a foray into a new relationship, mostly I just want to know the person. They're just valuable in and of themselves. But there's signs that I'm looking for. And those signs are things like, just being exhausted, trying to survive. Like People are working hard just to live. 
trying to be healthy, trying to manage their responsibilities. And what makes it even harder is these predominant ideologies that are all focused on self. You are the master of your universe. You've got to be God and in control of everything. Every shortcoming and hardship is somehow a failure of your strength. I'm looking for, in conversations with people, where they're harassed by that kind of ideology. Are you just exhausted? And in that, so often the relationship begins with just knowing you and being able to be present and hearing how you're tired, how it's hard, what you're struggling with. And I'll ask questions about that. And here's the thing, and you know, in gym culture, it's like the opposite type of motivation people are looking for. When you're being with people who are trying to be healthy, they're like, no, pump me up. And I'm like, no, let's talk about what's hard. One of my friends there, his wife has terminal cancer. So I'm checking in on a weekly basis to go, how are you doing? How are you processing that? And then the, the, often the consistent response is, nobody asks me those kinds of questions. Because we want the illusion that we can handle this life. So it's an inconvenient conversation to go, how's your mental health? How are you actually feeling? But it's a relief to somebody who's tired of spinning plates. Right? In those conversations, though, eventually, over many months, it comes to the next conversation, which is, are you ready to try something different? Are you ready for a new way? And that conversation looks like saying, this has actually always been the message of the Scriptures. This is the core message of who Jesus is. is salvation for people like you and me who are exhausted, aren't strong enough, and are big screw-ups. And that's good news to people who are ready for that. And then it becomes a question of, are you looking for a shepherd? A leader you can follow who's good, who's healthy, who you can trust. And that leader isn't me. That's not the priest's job in the church. That leader is Jesus. So that's, these are the harvest essentials, to have the message of Jesus and to actually look where he's working. Because those who the blinders are falling off of are the ones that he's prioritizing. Now the next piece is this, that we would be motivated by compassion. We would understand and empathize. We would enter into their suffering and that our core reason for engaging in these conversations is not to defend the faith or to aggressively push the faith. It's because we're confident in the faith, we're motivated by compassion. There are always conversations going on in our culture that are politically motivated. We are not fighting against people. We are not petitioning the problems. We're actually meeting them at their roots. We believe in the redemptive work of Jesus in the real mess of real people. We don't need legislative change to see the kingdom spread. We need to be moved by compassion. Do you hear me? We care about people. From that place, we're submitted to the Father. So this is the good news for me. When I'm sitting with someone, hearing about their story, 
moved by compassion, the first step I'm going to be making is praying for them. I'm going to begin praying to the Lord of the harvest for them. He needs to move their heart towards faith. We need that sovereign grace to move in their heart. But I remain open to connection. That's the goal. And what we're discerning is that moment of when it's time. It's time to talk about Jesus. And I notice a lot of my conversations with neighbors, with friends at the gym, or people I see consistently at the coffee shop, it's a long-term conversation where I'm saying things like, ah, see this problem you're struggling with? That's why I believe in the way of Jesus. That's, it helps me with that problem. And it gives food for thought, and then I don't push it. And then we come back next time, and they're like, okay, you said this about Jesus. How does Jesus work for this? I'm like, oh, let me tell you about that. I thought it was this way. This is the way I heard it. But actually what I found in the Scriptures and the tradition of the church is Jesus does it like this. And they're surprised how wonderful the Gospel sounds. The first stages are really hearing a a clear expression of who Jesus is and then dealing with the fact that they actually wish it was true before they believe it's true. When you can help them go, oh, these are my problems, and you're saying this is what Jesus does? And I'm not talking like, oh yeah, Jesus just makes that go away instantly. I'm not talking like that. It's a misrepresentation. I'm saying this is how Jesus uses it to change and transform your life. This is how Jesus works in the deep parts of your heart. But we're discerning, though, the moment when God is working in that space. Then what we're looking for is to be sent into it. So we're looking for the Father's blessing. He's the one holding the soul. He's the one preparing it. And then it's that moment to go testify to the good news of Jesus. But make it authentic and genuine from your story. Like If you're new to this, An authentic testimony would be, I'm still not sure about all of this, but this is what I've felt so far. This is what I've experienced so far. This is what Jesus is doing in my life so far. And I'm still on the journey trying to figure it out. But ultimately, when we know we've been sent into it, the ultimate confidence we have is that it's His harvest. So we can be non-anxious about participating in His mission. So we're not doing it out of fear or anxiety. We're doing it because we're confident and moved by compassion. We are essential to His plan. We all have to come to terms with that. His mission is designed to include you. Okay, So you do have to accept that and believe that He's going to provide for you to do that. But you're also optional. That's also good news. So you're essential because He planned it that way, but you're also optional because ultimately He's the Lord of the harvest and He's he's responsible for it. Which is also good news, isn't it? But when we look at this whole picture, I think what we see is Jesus looking out and seeing possibility for salvation seeing God working in the hearts of people, 
and knowing that he has a good message with good motivations. They're not self-serving. We are not proclaiming the gospel to the world because we want our church to be significant. We're not proclaiming the gospel to the world because we want to be proven right. We're proclaiming the gospel to the world because we're moved by compassion. Because God was moved by compassion. And we see Christ moved by compassion in his earthly ministry. And we see him call his disciples to compassion. This should be the defining motivation of our work. Confident, motivated by compassion, but ultimately non-anxious because we see God as Lord of the harvest. Isn't that a lot of good news? It's all of God moving. All of God working. And it opens us up to go, I'm open to relationship with people and I'm ready to be honestly myself as a follower of Jesus in that relationship. Knowing that God is sovereign at work in it and waiting for those moments where He says, now's the moment to really make the invitation. But really, it's natural. It's a lot more natural. Now, what we're going to see in the coming weeks, Jesus is going to send out the 12 apostles. We'll talk about that a bit. Their unique role in the mission to the world. And Jesus is going to send them out. And then we're going to talk about things like persecution. And how we need to be understanding of the fact that that's part and parcel of the work. And we're going to talk about what's fake persecution, what's real persecution. We're going to unpack a lot of stuff in the coming weeks. But this is, I think, at the center, at the heart of what the mission is. So this is worth your, I think, personal meditation in the coming weeks. To go, where am I at in this journey? And what does Jesus want to do in my heart to prepare me for each one of these steps? And if you're new to coming to the way of Jesus, some of this is just clarifying to go, oh, Jesus was never just after me to add to his numbers. Jesus genuinely was moved by compassion for my life in order to save me and to make me his own. You are not just some number to prop this up. Jesus is moved with personal compassion towards you as a person, and to your story, and to your need for salvation. So let's take a moment, if you're comfortable with it, close your eyes.